My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 51, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 37 and 38, Leviticus 26, and Psalm 83. Exodus 37. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made the atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. At the two ends, he made them of one piece with the cover. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other, looking toward the cover. They made the table of acacia wood two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Then they overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding around it. They also made around it a rim a hand's breadth wide and put a gold molding on the rim. They cast four gold rings for the table and fastened them to the four corners where the four legs were. The rings were put close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the tables. The poles for carrying the table were made of acacia wood and were overlaid with gold. And they made from pure gold the articles for the table, its plates and dishes and bowls and its pitchers for the pouring out of the drink offerings. They made the lampstand of pure gold. They hammered out its base and shaft and made flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches extended from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms were on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand were four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud was under the first pair of branches, extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds in the branches were all of one piece, with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. They made its seven lamps, as well as its wicks, trimmers, and trays of pure gold. They made the lampstand and all its accessories from one talent of pure gold. They made the altar of incense out of acacia wood. It was square, a cubit long, and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. Its horns of one piece with it. They overlaid the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and made a gold molding around it. They made two gold rings below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides, to hold the poles used to carry it. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. They also made the sacred anointing oil and pure, fragrant incense, the work of a perfumer. They built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, three cubits high. It was square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. They made a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns on the altar were of one piece, and they overlaid the altar with bronze. 
They made all its utensils of bronze, its pots, shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. They made a grating for the altar, a bronze network to be under its ledge, halfway up the altar. They cast bronze rings to hold the poles for the four corners of the bronze grating. They made the pole of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. They inserted the poles into the rings so they would be on the sides of the altar for carrying it. They made it hollow out of boards. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Next, they made the courtyard. The south side was a hundred cubits long and had curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side was also a hundred cubits long and had 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end was 50 cubits wide and had curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The east end toward the sunrise was also 50 cubits wide. Curtains 50 cubits long were on one side of the entrance with three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long were on the other side of the entrance to the courtyard with three posts and three bases. All the curtains around the courtyard were of finely twisted linen. The base for the posts were bronze. The hooks and bands on the posts were silver and their tops were overlaid with silver. So all the posts of the courtyard had silver bands. The curtain for the entrance to the courtyard was made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. It was 20 cubits long and like the curtain of the courtyard, five cubits high with four posts and four bronze bases. The hooks and bands were silver and their tops were overlaid with silver. All the tent pegs of the tabernacle and of the surrounding courtyard were bronze. These are the amounts of the materials used for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the covenant law, which were recorded at Moses' command by the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made everything the Lord commanded Moses. With him was Aholiab, son of Ashimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, and an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. The total amount of the gold from the wave offering used for all the work on the sanctuary was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. The silver obtained from those of the community were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. One becca per person, that is half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel. From everyone who had crossed over to those counted, 20 year, years old or more, a total of 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were used to cast the bases for the sanctuary and for the curtain. 100 bases from the 100 talents, one talent for each base. They used the 1,775 shekels to make the hooks for the posts to overlay the top of the posts and to make their bands. The bronze from the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. They used it to make the bases for the entrance to the tent of meeting. The bronze altar with its bronze grating and all its utensils, the bases for the surrounding courtyard and those for its entrance, all the tent pegs for the tabernacle and those for the surrounding courtyard. Leviticus 26 Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbath and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. 
If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all my commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting disease and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over, as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If, in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdrew or withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemies' hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If, in spite of this, you will you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries." and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that is lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbath you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, 
I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for the sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws, and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. Psalm 83. O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you, the tent of Edoms and the Ishmaelites of Moab, and the Hagrites, Biblios, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the people of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them to re reinforce Lot's descendants. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor, and became like dung on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zelmuna, who said, let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like chafe before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Okay, so in this story, it's that section between Exodus 35 and 40, where we're talking again, and I know it probably sounds like we're on repeat, but it's similar, there's nuanced detail, and the imagery is just so majestic about the tabernacle that's being built, and the whole point and purpose is so that God can dwell with the people again. Um, and we talked in the past about it being a portable Garden of Eden, um, because that was really the last time that he was able to dwell with so Father Mike Schmitz points out how some sacrifices are required, but there are also sacrifices that are free will from the stirring of our hearts. And people in the story we read yesterday gave so generously that Moses had to tell them to stop. 
So we're reading like this, there's two things going on. It's like really specific regulations about how to do something, like implement this specific plan. And then there's also some opportunities to be creative, pick your charitable adventure, bring what you can. I don't know why I was compelled to think about Simon Cyrene from the New Testament, but he was the one in quotes found, compelled and seized as reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to carry Jesus's cross. To me, this has echoes to Genesis and here in Exodus, where Yahweh God is empowering and recruiting his own creation to take part in the rescue mission, to take part in the purpose of it all. He is not disenfranchised God. Like he doesn't want us to do it alone and he doesn't want to do it for us alone. He wants to do it with us in a relationship. So fully recognizing that he will do all the heavy lifting and maybe like a toddler crossing the street whom it would be easier to just like pick up and carry. Instead, God is holding our hands. He's protecting, guiding, and allowing us to walk with him in the shadow of his wing and towards the purpose of it all, dwelling, being a blessing, becoming, ruling with justice and fairness, subduing the things that lead to death. Yes, we are part of the blessing of filling the earth. But I recognize that filling is the verb and God is the source of what I pour from one place to another. He's the equipper and mobilizer of the filling itself. Second, when I think about Simon again of Cyrene, he took the cross, the legally compelled first Roman mile, a thousand paces. So that was a law in the ancient Near Eastern world. If a Roman soldier told you to, you know, carry something, you were compelled, you had to do it for um, up to a mile. And scripture says Simon walked behind Jesus. So Jesus is leading and he's going first. And people often tether this first mile, this required legal sacrifice to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 41 where Jesus says, and if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. So the pattern in scripture seems to be that there's a required sacrifice and it's very specific. And there is also a heart stirring, spirit led sacrifice. So my dissertation research on ethical marketing seemed to delineate something similar from my own findings. I noted that some ethical marketing strategies were about justice. So being fair and caring for an organization's resources, it it used and how it took care of its employees and customers and other stakeholders. But this was different from an ethical strategy related to charity. So charity was giving beyond expectation and in ways which were beyond necessity, and in some cases, well beyond imagination. I think it's important to consider if our heart and attitude are able to do what is asked of us exactly as God asks, and then also choose our adventure of charity. How can we give prodigally, love, and share our talents, and live into our purpose in unexpected ways from the conviction, community, and clarity of our hearts? Sometimes I feel like we're looking for, maybe it's just me, but we're like, oh, so does God want me to do something specific? Like, for example, I'm sure all of you have heard about it, like, you know, give 10% or do something specific. Or am I supposed to give everything I can or what I'm, you know, convicted to give and do? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. 
right? I think God is asking and in many cases specifically saying, this is what I want, sacrifice in this way. And then he's also saying, and, and give whatever your heart is, is stirred and moved to give, uh, bring that. So my reminder to myself is to be thoughtful about how I can be both ethical doing things right and well and charitable. So not just ethical or just charitable, but to live and lead in ways that represent God's justice and fairness and what I do, how I do it, why I do it, and his mercy and prodigal love, provision, protection, and the pursuit of those in need. So ethics and charity, doing what we are compelled because it is right, and then also giving from our resources, time, and talent are both very important to putting God on display and living, flourishing in creation and community as scripture is patterned out. I think sometimes if we do one without the other, there's a conflict that's observable that I think brings conflict to putting God on display well. So there are also seems to be <laughs> Leviticus, right? There also seems to be a pattern to punishment. So it typically starts with self-exiling. It's a moral defection and a heart of doubt that leads to rebellious action. So then there's this inevitable like natural consequence of being cut off from God's presence that leads to death. I notice that this is our choice and because he loves us, God allows us to pull away. He gives us what we want. So it's like he's giving us life and light, but he's allowing us to pull out and pull away towards the darkness. And there's scary things that are in darkness. We also see in the larger pattern of the story that God continually pursues the exiles and seeks to make a way to restore and redeem, to rescue from death and separation. So he will go out into the darkness, hover over it and try to pursue you and bring you back. It's like, it's there over and over already in the story. It's so cool. However, there is also a threaded warning that God will allow those who choose to take the path that leads to death to reject him, to reject his rescue, to reject the path towards restoration and redemption. He will allow people to stay in the dark. He's not gonna take them by force. This is not out of hate or anger, but love. He wants our heart, mind, and body to be aligned in a love allegiance with him. He will not force our body compliance, our mental conformance, or false feelings. The grace, the free will, the pursuit, and the design are all working in a tethered dance as only a just, loving, and merciful God can do. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.